Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Paul French, the author of North Korea, A State of Paranoia. Now Paul is a Pyongyang watcher and I invited him on the show to discuss the whereabouts of Kim Jong-un and also the Kim dynasty. Now, with Kim Jong-un absent from the annual celebration of his grandfather and the founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, speculation about the current leader's whereabouts and welfare have started to circulate. A number of media outlets reported that Kim Jong-un was either dead or perhaps in a vegetative state following a botched operation, while others have claimed he is simply in hiding out of fear of coronavirus. Getting any reliable information out of North Korea is close to impossible, and until either a public appearance or an official statement is released by North Korean officials, it is unlikely we would know what is happening with Kim Jong-un. So I got Paul on to discuss the possibilities, what the different scenarios are, and any succession planning. Paul has incredible insight into North Korea and the Kim dynasty, and we discussed the history of North Korea, the Kim family, Kim Jong-un's whereabouts, and what may happen next. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Hi, Paul. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, I, I, like many others, have a curiosity and interest with North Korea. A fascinating country in many ways and um, when my friend Tom said you're the person I need to speak to I quickly listened to the show you made I've uh, read the article you sent me this morning I've got so many questions and ultimately I think a lot of people right now want to know where is where is Kim Jong-un but actually I would like to go and dig into the background before we even talk about the possibilities with that so Really, just as a starting point, can you explain what a Pyongyang watcher is? Well, a Pyongyang watcher really is someone who is um, <clears throat> stupid enough, really, to want to try and understand what's going on in North Korea. Um, I think, you know, we always used to have Kremlin watchers. And um, to an extent, we have kind of um, Jongnanhai watchers who, who watch uh, what's going on in, in China. And North Korea is the most uh, difficult one of all of those, really. Um, we get virtually no statistics. We get nothing we can rely on. Any statistics we do get never come with a decimal point. And if they did ever come with a decimal point, we'd, we'd never believe them. 
no one will give you an interview no one talks to you it's very difficult to talk to any ordinary people you can't do like all the china correspondents can at least at the end of the day they can say well a taxi driver told me you know uh, you can't even do that in north korea so you kind of watch and try and pass the the, the tea leaves really as as to what's going on and a lot of people like myself came to north korea through living and working in china and looking at it from a, from sort of down if you like from china and a lot of other people of course come from studying in south korea and looking up up at the north and i think um, certainly for my generation chinese studies was a kind of a big i mean i'm in my early 50s right so chinese was something that was becoming quite important at that point more and more nowadays we see people studying chinese uh, studying korean sorry which is fantastic i mean nobody much did korean in my day but there's a great much more interest in south korea particularly and obviously people go to south korea and then they get interested in this weird place in the north so it's a very strange sort of uh, occupation and there's probably a lot of people off in um, langley and elsewhere also trying to do their north korean watching with the benefit of drones and satellites and things that most of us don't have access to and it's also a world in which no one really knows anything so there is no great repository of knowledge it's not a question of if i just had access to that one person or that one source i could know everything i need to know that just doesn't exist and even when we get uh, defectors, and of course, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've had quite a lot of defectors coming to um, South Korea, particularly illegally in China and elsewhere. And, and people always forget that, of course, here in uh, London is the second largest really nor official North Korean community outside of, um, outside of South Korea. The UK government is actually, uh, it's one of those stories that you don't hear very often, but the UK government, despite all the problems with immigration and visas and, you know, anti-foreigner feeling in Britain in the last few years has actually been quite generous with um, access for, for North Korean defectors. Anyway, so, so that's the problem. Basically, you're studying something uh, in which uh, you can't know uh, very little. And so that makes, makes it all very difficult. And it means that um, when something like this comes along, which is kind of, you know, where is uh, Kim Jong-un? Is he dead? Is he alive? Has he had a stroke? What's going on? Who will take over? I mean, there's just, of course, then a, a massive speculation floods out and all of it's about as good as any other of it, really. Right. OK. Yeah, the, the London thing is interesting because that's where Tae Yong-ho ended up defecting to when he when I spoke to him, when he said he um, when he defected. But when I listened to the show you sent me last night, it, you talked a bit about studying photographs studying the positions of people in photographs. And to me, it sounded like trying to analyze and verify information with regard to North Korea's, it's almost like a Sudoku puzzle. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we always, I mean, Kremlinologists, when I was a student first doing sort of, you know, Russian studies and Chinese studies, studying communist countries at that time, it was the Cold War and no one had much had access anywhere. And people would look at who was on the rostrum in Red Square to see where all the positions were. And um, at the same time, in the sort of last days of Mao and, and moving into Deng Xiaoping and, and who was being purged and who was returning, who was being, um, you know, uh, given positions again, uh, that was kind of what you did. And that's even more difficult with North Korea, but definitely you're trying to work out who who is by 
you know, the dear leader, the great leader's side, who is being mentioned, who's being allowed to travel abroad, who is visiting Beijing, if there are talks going on with Seoul, as there have been at several times in the early 2000s and, and more recently, uh, who's there, you know, um, going back to the first sort of nuclear crisis, which was during the Clinton administration in America, Madeleine Albright, um, you know, who is getting to meet these people? And who are these people? And then trying to work out, of course, in the, in the specificity of North Korea, how close are they to the Kim clan? I mean, you know, we should never forget that the, the one extraordinary thing about North Korea uh, compared to any other communist country, and I'm not even thinking China or Russia, I'm thinking of the real outliers like Romania, Albania, places like that, is that this is a uh, communist monarchy, right? It has, it has passed from grandfather to father. To, to son, and uh, who know who knows where it could go next? We've never seen that before. We didn't even, you know, even Stalin and Mao didn't try that one, and so therefore, not just Kim Il Sung, Kim Jong Il, and Kim Jong Un, but but the clan, the Kim clan around them, is also fascinating. And given that under Kim Jong Un's uh, tenure in the last few years, we've seen quite clearly the assassination of his half brother. We've seen the very public execution of his uncle-in-law, you know, um, Jiang Songtet, and, uh, and and so this is um, proximity to the clan, if you like, is very important uh, in in a way that it isn't quite so important in other in other communist countries. So in that sense, it it makes it it sort of adds a level of bizardom to the bizarre, really. And and the clan does it does it hold on to power through a lot of the mythology that's created around? The dynasty. Well, I think so. And I think, you know, how we've seen the cult of personality around Kim Jong-un be developed is very interesting because it's really sort of agreed by everyone, even when you talk to defectors in South Korea or London or China or whatever, that uh, Kim Il-sung really is the father of the nation. So, so Kim Il-sung comes from that great tradition of anti-colonial fighters in the Second World War and nation builders afterwards in, in East Asia. You know, he is fighting against, first of all, the Japanese occupation of, of Korea. And then, of course, during the war, to get to get rid of them, uh, living in Manchuria and, and, and the Soviet Far East. Um, and then he creates North Korea, which, of course, takes him into uh, he, the, the awful uh, Korean War, uh, which still technically, of course, is not not over. We only have an armistice. We don't have a, a it's, it's still sort of ongoing. But there's a respect there in the sense that like Suharto in Indonesia or uh, or, 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 or Mao after 1949 um, or, or other people around the world at that time, that these are people fighting off the shackles of colonialism, forging a country, trying to forge a different, and in the case of the North Koreans, like the Chinese really, a very independent way, not to be completely subservient to either communist China or, or Soviet Russia. Um, and I think that's sort of always meant that he had a lot of respect. And of course, because people don't have a lot of access to information, there isn't a great sort of open debate around history in North Korea, of course, to say the least. Mm-hmm. When Kim Il-sung eventually dies in the early 90s, Kim Jong-il his son takes over. Now, there's a lot less respect for Kim Jong-il for all sorts of reasons, and we, we can talk about that. But the point is, the first absolute national emergency that Kim Jong-il takes has to take control of in the, in the early 1990s is an enormous famine, a famine that 
could possibly have killed 10% of the Korean North Korean population. So he has to take that. And of course, he is in many people's minds in North Korea still blamed for that famine. But of course, that famine was actually, uh, you know, the legacy that his father left him of a ridiculous Stalinist style command economy and collectivized farming that had been unable to feed the people. And then he died and the son inherits the mess. And I think um, that always uh, was a problem for Kim Jong-il and also the problem that he was not seen as being of the military. So he had to deal with that whole problem of how do you stop the military forcing a coup against you to remove the Kim clan if they don't see you as one of them? And so he had to deal with those problems. When Kim Jong-un comes along, that's all largely been resolved. And so Kim Jong-un can then start to position himself as a more interesting character to talk about economic problems, to try and address the youth of the country, which no one's ever paid any attention to before in, in North Korea, but but also to complete the program of his father. So in a sense, Kim Jong-il was left with this horrendous legacy of famine. Kim Jong-un was left with this, in his view, quite positive legacy, which was a pretty well-developed secret nuclear program that he, of course, has been able to deliver. But it doesn't start with him, even though, of course, he's the man who was eventually able to say, look, guys, we can, we, the world has to listen to us. We are protected against imperialism. We have the nuclear, the nuclear weapon. Um, um, and so in the way that Kim Jong-il inherited a mess Kim Jong-un actually, I think it's, I, I would argue, inherited uh, uh, quite a good shop in a sense. And so he was able to complete a lot of things that had been started and, and come out of it looking reasonably good, which is why, you know, although people outside when he first took over thought, you know, who is this guy? He's too young. He's too stupid. He looks a bit crazy. You know, where's his base? Really underestimated him. And here we are almost a decade later. And, um, you know, who knows what's happened now. But I mean, I would suggest that there hasn't really been serious threats to his rule while he's been there. And he's sort of surprised us all at how well he's consolidated power and what he's managed to achieve in North Korea during a very different time, difficult time of sanctions and so on. Wow. Okay. There's a lot yeah. to unpack here and a, a lot I want to ask about. I, I do want to work through the dynasty because the grandfather, Kim Il-sung, I, he's the one I know least about. And what I'd like to know a little bit more about from you is, uh, obviously, you talked about he came in with a lot of respect. You know, he forged this new country. But in terms of his influence on, on the type of country he wanted to build, can you tell me about that influence, where that came from? And and also, I, I guess originally and, and early on, he would have had a lot of support from the people, made perhaps a good relationship with the military. But did he have to change his tactics to uh, keep control of the country? Were there at times he was under threat? Well, I, Kim Il-sung comes from a very strange background. He's born in 1912. He's actually, um, <clears throat> which people always like to refer to in books, and I admit to having done it myself, as if it means anything. He's actually born on the same day as the Titanic sinks. Those are the two great historical events that happen on that day. And, and he actually is born into, uh, as was often the case in uh, the, the more educated classes of uh, Korea during the Japanese colonial times, uh, a Christian family. However, he was a guerrilla fighter from the start. He spent time in Manchuria. He spent time in, uh, in the Soviet Far East. And he very much came under the thinking and sway of Soviet Stalinist style communism. That's part of the reason why North Korea has never had 
quite the close relationship with China that people sort of think it would do, both being Asian nations, both being post-war communist countries. Its relationship to Russia was always a lot closer. Now, nowadays, of course, when Russia hasn't quite got the cash to flash around and doesn't really care very much, the relationship with China has become more important because uh, who else is going to pay for North Korea? But that's a separate question. So that relationship was there. So he, he, he really leads a guerrilla fight and he's known as a guerrilla fighter in, during, the, during the struggle for independence and the struggle against the Japanese. And in a way that Tito was in Yugoslavia, I think is probably the closest analogy there as, as a partisan leader uh, with Soviet backing. He comes into Pyongyang at the end of the war, and he creates North Korea. Uh, at the same time, the Americans are setting up their proxy state, you know, down in Seoul, uh, South Korea, which is effectively a militarized state at the time. I mean, we could do a whole show on how the Korean War starts, but I think suffice to shortcut it and say that basically the North starts it. Now, I know that there'll be lots of people who won't like that argument, but but I think that's fairly clear. And he fights it without a vast amount of help from Russia. I mean, they do send a few fighter planes, but not a lot else. There is, of course, the Chinese volunteers that Mao sends, who uh, were large in number, not overly effective as a fighting force. And, of course, he wages this war against largely the United States, although, of course, it was always a United Nations action, which explains why the British Army and, and others were there as well. And he faces down the threat and this is very important to understanding the North Korean mindset, that within a few years, you throw off the shackles of Japanese imperialism, you create a new country, and then you fight a civil war in which, during which your entire country is flattened. I mean, Pyongyang is absolutely flattened, hardly a building left standing. It looks like Tokyo after the firebombing. And of course, you are threatened with nuclear attack. Right. I mean, there was a serious consideration as to whether or not to just nuke North Korea. Didn't happen. But anyway. So when the war eventually reaches the armistice and, the, and Kim Il-sung has to build the nation again, he really starts from scratch. And so he has to create a narrative of national struggle and national rebuilding. And from the very start, he doesn't take a great deal of material help. The Chinese don't really have much to give anyway at this point. And, and, and the Russians don't offer a lot apart from, of course, oil flows uh, are very useful. But anyway, he builds the country. What he does in order to do that is create an ideology. And that ideology, which we can call juche or self-reliance, becomes this blend of very Soviet-inflected Marxism-Leninism, it also involves quite a bit of uh, uh, Confucianism, which, of course, is traditional to that part. And, and we can talk about that, how that influences the, you know, why would you have see it as natural that a communist party leadership should pass from a father to a son to a son? And, you know, why is all this important? The role of women and so on and the role of a great leader and the people answering to a great leader. <clears throat> Many of these answers are found not in Stalin's on the party or Mao's theory and practice, they're found in um, Confucian relations of filial piety. And he throws in some, uh, some aspects of traditional Korean values and so on. And this creates Juche. 
But it's ultimately about self-reliance. It's about not being dependent on anyone else. And so he builds the nation that way. So there is a narrative of suffering, a narrative of struggling against the rest of the world. And if you like what I call a sort of theatrical victimhood, that the war is still ongoing. We are still under attack. Everybody wants is out to get us. And so we must build a wall around ourselves, whether that is a physical wall, nobody in, nobody out, very little contact with the outside world. And then we must defend ourselves, whether that is, you know, pointing all your weapons across the DMZ at South Korea, the rhetoric against America and Japan, or now, of course, the nuclear deterrent. And so that policy becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And the one fundamental thing that happens under Kim Il-sung and then is really accelerated under Kim Jong-il is that it takes traditional Marxism-Leninism, which of course places the proletariat, the working class at the top of the agenda. And the theoretical difference there is that it then places the military above the proletariat. So you have what Kim Jong-il then later develops as Songun theory or military first theory. So the military becomes the most important aspect of the society. And everyone must, of course, do, you know, a, a very vast percentage of the population is in the military, has to do military service. So it's everywhere throughout society. So it becomes a, a fortress state, an almost Spartan state. And, and that in various forms is what Kim Il-sung hands down to us today, that kind of hermit career, that fortress career, what, what's been referred to sometimes as the porcupine strategy right you know you just can't you can't get in and touch the damn thing you know because there's spikes and resistance everywhere and he creates that society which is what we have to deal with now and which is why we don't know where kim kim jong-un is but paul i mean i don't know if you can answer this but does he do this because this is his belief that this creates uh, a, a great nation because he is patriotically uh, korean or does he do this as a way of just holding on to power oh i, I think he's, he's a little bit of both obviously but i think his whole life is determined by an anti-colonial struggle and that anti-colonial struggle is against the japanese initially it is then of course against the americans and you know the american proxies in the south koreans and, you know, he looks around the world and what does he see? Well, he sees lots of places in Eastern Europe becoming satellites of the Soviet Union and effectively becoming vassal states. And he doesn't really want to do that. And the notion of a vassal state is a very big one in East Asia, you know, that goes back through the sort of formation of East Asia and China and so on and the Mongol Empire. But so he sees that very clearly in Eastern Europe. He sees China wanting to extend itself as a rival to the Soviet Union. Now, he sees the Sino-Soviet split developing and the idea that you're either with moscow or you're with beijing and he doesn't really want to be with either of those he doesn't see that what's the point of fighting a colonial struggle to become an anti-colonial struggle to become effectively another colony um, and of course he sees america putting in vast amounts of men material and cash and support to build south korea and to rebuild japan and you know of course he sees Everything else that's going on, uh, Taiwan, he sees, you know, the British Empire trying to reestablish itself in Singapore and, and Hong Kong, the Pacific, you know, becoming um, again somewhere, uh, you know, of con a point of contestation, but particularly American dominated up until almost the present day. Right. So 
he's looking around at all these things and he doesn't see anything else but a notion of of hunker down and and that kind of survival strategy and i think it's an extreme version of what lots of other countries in the region were doing at the same time. I mean, Indonesia is kind of doing the same as it, as it throws off the shackles of Dutch colonialism. You know, it is, it is, it is doing itself through its own political theories that blend, you know, Indonesian tradition with Islam with, you know, these things are going on all around the world in different ways. And he's just the most extreme example of it at that time. Um, and you can almost sort of understand it because who wants to become a vassal state of the Soviet Union taking orders direct from Moscow? You know, no, nobody in, in Poland or East Germany or anywhere else was very happy about that. There are countries that are trying to go their own way, whether it be a slightly more open way like Tito's Yugoslavia or whether it be an even harder way of doing things such as uh, uh, Hodges' Albania or Ceausescu's uh, Romania. And of course, you know, as we get into the Korean War and all of this period, he's also looking at what's going on with Cuba. You see in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you see in a very real threat from nuclear weapons, you know. Um, and, and so in that sense, we can almost sort of understand what it is he's doing, right? Um, except it becomes uh, almost, it, it, it's sort of pushed to, to, to an almost ridiculous extreme. But And then, of course, it becomes about holding on to power. And also, the, the problem of, so, I mean, you know, I don't want to keep talking without you asking questions, but one of the very no, important please things talk, is, please talk. One of the very important things to always remember is that when you start setting yourself up, if you like, in a Confucian way that, you know, you will be in power and then you will pass to the sun and you will pass to, to that. And there's a group around you, a clan, if you like, and so on. Uh, what, what some people have sort of, you know, offhandedly called sort of, you know, Sopranos socialism, right? Um, it, it, you, you kind of, um, you, you have to be absolutely right all the time. And this is a very important thing, that the inability of anyone to say that Kim Il-sung was wrong about anything, that is then carried over to say that you can never really say publicly that Kim Jong-il isn't wrong about anything. So there's never any challenge to what's going on. So when things are attempted, reforms are attempted or changes in policy are attempted. And we saw this in 2002 with Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il's economic reforms. We saw it a few years ago with Kim Jong-un's attempt at economic reforms. They just fail and then they're never mentioned again because to do so would be to criticize the leader because all reform has to be the genius idea of the leader. And so the idea that collectivized farming on, on a Soviet system was the way to go. Um, when that failed completely and North Korea just simply couldn't feed itself, who do you criticize? You can't do it. Now, in China, where you have a leadership that's really party controlled and moves between different people, they're all in the same party, but they represent different factions, different groups. When Deng Xiaoping came to power, he was able to say, Look, we're gonna. We've got Mao was a great man. Mao's on all the money. Mao's statue is in Tiananmen. You can all go and see his uh, embalmed body. We're never gonna trash Mao. What we're gonna say is that it's the eighty twenty principle, right? You know, Mao mm -hmm. was eighty percent good, twenty percent bad, and that gives you that twenty percent of wiggle room to say China is a great country. The Communist Party is leading it absolutely effectively. But you know what? There's that 20% where we want to introduce a little bit more marketization. 
or we want to set up a stock exchange again, or we're going to create Shenzhen and let some foreign business come in and do some joint ventures. You can't do any of that in North Korea because you are trapped all the time in the leader is 100% right. And if anything goes slightly wrong, you, you don't have any wiggle room there. And that's been incredibly important as to why China has been able to go through this, you know, phenomenally successful process of change over the last 30 years. But North Korea hasn't. And it's, it's a fundamental difference that goes to the very core of understanding everything about North Korea, I think. And is this where the mythology, therefore, around the Kim dynasty comes from? I, I mean, I mainly know it from Kim Jong-il, the, his golf record, his uh, riding of unicorns, yeah. the, the stories, just the crazy stories I, I would have read and heard about him. But did this mythology around the family start with the grandfather? Uh, to an extent, um, and I think it starts off like all of these things probably start off with slight exaggerations. So it's certainly, as far as we can work out, Kim Il-sung's record as a glorious fighter of the anti-colonial resistance against the Japanese is somewhat exaggerated. I mean, they were really probably more of a sort of ragtag band of Korean anti-colonial fighters with some support from the Russians doing very limited amounts of sort of hit and run operations. It's not that it wasn't important. It's not that it wasn't the right thing to do. But it's been exaggerated. And that exaggeration has then built and built and built. So by the time we get to uh, all these stories, you know, that when Kim Jong-il was born, a glacier cracked and cranes flew across the sky and there was a new star in the sky. This is where, you know, that element of Juche, which is about Korean traditional symbolism and mythology and everything, comes into the system. I think what what we shouldn't do is is take it for granted that the North Korean people think there was a star in the sky and a glacier cracked and crazy. You know, they, they understand it as a mythology, as a symbolism, right? In the mm -hmm. way that, I don't know, in the British monarchy, we understand that crowns and castles and things are all just part of the, of, of the whole thing. And we, we choose to, to accept it. And that is very important when you hear, for instance, uh, and we can talk about, you know, Kim Jong-un, for instance, uh, when he's been purging people, having fed them to wolves, right? I mean, that was one story that went everywhere. And I think that, you, you know, understand that as allegory, understand that as, you know, within mythology, the most worthless scraps are thrown to the wolves, right? You know, I mean, that's how you should understand it. Not that right. men were actually torn apart by wolves. Or, you know, when you hear that someone was shot with an anti-aircraft gun, which would, of course, have obliterated them into pieces, it's not that someone was executed with a with a anti-aircraft gun, which would be a bizarre thing to do if you think about it. Um, but it's that you understand the analogy that someone has been completely blown to pieces, right? Completely removed from this earth and removed from the historical record. And that's how you're supposed to understand it. So, so much of this um, is to do with mythology and tradition. And I think that it's fair to say that, that North Korean people understand it as such. Um, but it is part of the, it has become part of the not unattractive sometimes kind of socialist realism meets, you know, flying horses type aesthetic of North Korea, right? So, you know, the choreos and, and the flying horses and so on, the, 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 the wearing of the traditional hanbok dress, certainly by women, traditional music, dance, 
all of this thrown together with the kind of crazy, almost sort of surreal, hyper-real graphics sometimes that then kind of merge with a Korean imitation of Soviet social realism, you know, and traditional Chinese or Soviet communist propaganda creates this very specific, very unique North Korean aesthetic, which I know lots and lots of people are appealed are you know whenever i talk sometimes about these things i get lots of young hipsters come along and what what interests them about north korea is not the pyongyangology of who's on the rostrum and where's the position they, they just think that a lot of the stuff a lot of the movie posters and you know uh, the, the the giant uh, mass games that they do with a hundred thousand people performing and 300 people watching you know that kind of uh, craziness they find that sort of aesthetically very appealing so so well, that's the uh, the Vice style documentary. Yes, I, I I think that kind of thing has really appealed to to a younger audience and kept them interested in North Korea. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, as, as an old school sort of sinologist, I sort of um, I'm always very wary of 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 sort of going around to people's houses for dinner who are a little bit interested in China and up on the wall they have a lot of Cultural Revolution posters, and I'm just like, ooh, you know, not not too sure about that. What what that's really saying. If it gets people into North Korea, it's interesting. And the North Koreans are, are sort of under, have understood. They make a little bit of money off it with sort of stamps and, and selling uh, posters and things. But it, what it is, is it's a culture and, and an aesthetic like their politics and political theory that has grown within an isolated country. So it doesn't really answer to the outside world in any way. And, of course, to us, take something as ridiculous as Kim Jong-un's haircut. Uh, you know, this sort of quite funny haircut. And then we don't really understand that haircut at all. And no one in North Korea would understand why that's not a funny haircut because they don't have access, you know, large scale access to the outside world. And then, of course, you know, a barber in Finsbury Park in North London for a joke says, I'll give you everyone a free Kim Jong-un haircut, right? You know, and someone from the North Korean embassy in London is sent to the barbers to complain that, you know, you're mocking, you're mocking the dear leader and the guy in the barber's shop in Finsbury Park doesn't understand what the hell's going on. Why is he getting a visit from the North Korean embassy? You know, I mean, that kind of level of detachment has, has allowed this kind of specific, interesting politics and culture to grow. When it becomes a problem, of course, is when they get nuclear weapons and start pointing them at people. That, that's, that's when that kind of isolation becomes a problem. Of, of course. But um, how institutionalized are the, the people of North Korea? Because we look externally, right? I, I, I'm, uh, I'm based in, in Little Bedford, not far from London, normal life. You know, if we forget what's going on in the world right now, uh, you know, I could go bowling with the kids. And, and also I can go out, stand outside 10 down the street with a sign and I can shout at the government and I can protest. And, and, and then I can, I can just live a very normal, liberal, Western democratic life. And I can look externally at North Korea and just think, this place seems crazy. Like, how do these people live this life? But internally, what is it like for the people there? How much exposure do they have to the outside world? Um, my friend, um, Alex, I don't know if you know Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, but and also Taeyong Ho himself, they, he said the most important thing you can do is get information into North Korea to, to young people showing them what life is like outside of North Korea. So how institutionalized are these people? How conditioned are they to thinking that this is normal life? Like uh, the rest of the world is living like this. Or are people fully aware that they're living in under a strange regime? Uh, 
in many ways, that's the kind of million dollar question, right? Which is, right. does everyone believe all of this, right? Do they really believe? And it and it's hard to say. Certainly, they believe every country, of course, as we know in the UK better than anywhere in the last few years, has its own national myths, which can be a help or a hindrance, depending on where you are. Um, North Korea has its extreme versions of blitz spirit and exceptional generations and you know an island nation and you know it has all of those myths going on and they are manipulated by the government as myths are in every country in the world you know i spend a lot of time trying to deal with young chinese who believe that you know the Communist Party really started everything potentially positive in, you know, that women didn't go to school in China before the Communist Party, that you couldn't go get access to the Forbidden City before the Communist Party. You know, most of this is not true, but the Communist Party is quite happy to for everyone to believe it and to take the credit. In order for them to stay in power, for regime survival, there needs to be a, a national myth of what I've called theatrical victimhood, that almost the Second World War hasn't ended, right? that the country is still under threat of attack. Now, this is not necessarily true, but it's very easy to convince a large number of people in North Korea that this is the case. And of course, when we're thinking about whether or not we support sanctions against North Korea, whether or not at times, as has been the case in the last 20, 30 years, whether we support regime change strategies, whether that be boots on the ground military solutions, or whether that be even more tightening of the screws, if that's possible, on North Korea. You know, all of that does play into their their, na their national things. And it's easy to draw parallels that we can see ourselves, you know. If you, if you're, and of course, if your media is extremely limited, your access to media, if you don't have the internet, if you don't have people traveling in and out of the country, if you don't have access to foreign media, it's very difficult to say, right? It's like, you know, if you're a Daily Mail reader and that's all you read, your view of the world, your view of the European Union, your view of everything is, is you know, right? But of course, there's no excuse for that because there's all sorts of other things you can look at. In North Korea, that's not necessarily the case. So that is a problem. And of course, that media is highlighting problems overseas. The fact that the country is still under threat from particularly the United States and its proxy South Korea, uh, that Japan is probably also still a threat. Um, and nowadays, probably a little bit that, you know, China is not very friendly. So that myth plays into things. And people do believe that. But what's, what's key to the whole thing is keeping people in the country. Now, there's a collective punishment system in, in North Korea. So if people leave the country, their whole family can be punished. And when you leave North Korea, it's changed a little bit lately, but by and large, when you leave, that's the last contact you'll have. You'll probably never be able to speak to your mother again. You'll never be able to speak to your aunts and uncles again. You'll never be able to speak to your old college friends again. You'll never be able to do anything, right? When you're gone, you're out. And also, you won't know necessarily what's happened to them. They may have been punished. So if you're in the system, this is why so many Koreans that we see leaving the country, unlike the diplomats who defect or something, but just ordinary, regular North Koreans. If you go to the community in sort of, you know, southwest London, they're all very, very young because you leave before you form attachments, before you get married, before you have children. 
um, before you get sucked into the system too much. And you also often, I've had many, talking to many people over there over the years, you often go with your parents' blessing. It's almost a kind of, you know, you go, don't worry about what happens to us. We're old. Blah, blah, blah. That may well be true given, you know, level of uh, longevity in North Korea. So, and and young, so it's not difficult to leave North Korea. I mean, you can virtually walk across the Yalu. It's very easy to get into China, find third country. I mean, I say easy, it's, it's relative, but it's doable if you're young and you have no encumbrances. So what tends to happen with those people who have got married, who have children, who have some position is they just sort of hunker down and stick it out, right? And what becomes important is family and what becomes important is close friends. And, and that's what happens. So, you know, family units, family, if you go in the parks in Pyongyang in the summer, families getting together and picnics, picnicking and group sing songs and dances and celebrating weddings and birthdays and things like that is all very, very important because that, that, that is very important to you, your family. Within that, you just try and get on and survive. And as I say, this, I think, explains why people just put their heads down, carry on with things and try and get through stuff. And there are certain performative actions that they must take every so often, such as showing, uh, you know, um, support and filial piety towards the leader and the party. It means that when a leader dies, you have to go out and do your crying. It means that you're going to be in a very communal sort of life where you will have to take part in both political struggle sessions and conversations, as well as going out and doing group gymnastics and things like that, you know, stuff that would probably annoy quite a lot of us all the time. But when you go to North Korea, it's not like many Asian cities. The streets aren't crowded. There aren't sort of people in shacks. People have a flat. They, by and large, have what they would probably consider enough food, at least in, in, in Pyongyang and several other cities. Uh, it's different in the countryside. Um, they have a job they get on with things you know and i think that that's how you have to understand it that you, you just put your head down and you carry on and things that may be important to us i guess what young people would refer to as first world problems like where am i going to go on holiday or you know am i going to change my job next week or you know am i going to go and stand outside and protest to, against brexit or, or whatever i mean these, these are just not things that are on the agenda so you just don't think about them right that collective punishment has that always been there does that date as far back as the grandfather yes i mean there's there's, there's always been that notion I, I um uh there's a there's a great korean word for it which has gone out of my head um and it does vary and also no one's ever quite sure how strong the policy is so there are always rumors flying around which i think have at times been true that anyone caught crossing into China and returned to North Korea by China because they have an agreement with China that all North Korean defectors should be sent back, you know, that they are shot when they arrive back has perhaps at times been true. Um, probably hasn't been true for quite some time now because the number of people who are defecting would mean that it would create actually, you know, uh, anger among quite a lot of people that that is, uh, but the fact that that might happen is enough to um, to scare most people. It's certainly true that there are very large, in terms of percentage of the population, labour camps, and those differ from you know high political labour camps to just people who are guilty of maybe minor offences like uh, you know illegal uh, black market selling of something. And again, these things are always 
there is no it feels like there is a great lot of law and control but there is also sort of a little bit like in china no rule of law in a sense right so when food times are hard there are many many people who sort of go backwards and forwards across the border with china buying up vegetables buying up cigarettes buying up whatever and selling it in sort of you know illegal farmers markets back in north korea now those are occasionally clamped down on and they're occasionally opened up and sometimes they turn a blind eye to it because it it kind of dissipates any residual anger that could exist within the, within the society it's a sort of alternative well, food I, circulation um... Yeah, sorry. When I was uh, reading about the famine, I read that the black market was very important. Mm. Yes, I mean, I, I think the black market has, has is one of those things that goes through through you know uh, peaks and troughs, and there have been attempts under Kim Jong Il and under Kim Jong Un to sort of regulate it, to sort of allow it to happen. Um, but a part part of that black market is smuggling. Um, and that, that's very important in terms of bringing the information as well, which is why smuggling is still cracked down on. If you're bringing in tomatoes or something from Jilin province in China, that's one thing. If you're bringing in, as lots of people are now, because there's more uh, kind of laptops and computers and things, USB sticks that have, you know, vast amounts of uh, can contain vast amounts of stuff. Uh, South Korean magazines, South Korean Chinese movies, soap operas, all of the soft power of, of South Korea filtering in so that of course they're still uh, concerned about the, the major thing about markets i think is to break this uh, still very strong obsession with collective farming and allow farmers to grow their own produce and sell their own produce and for a, a sensible pricing mechanism to exist there now that has happened obviously in china very successfully um, and other former socialist countries. Um, but as I say, to come back to this point, where the leader is 100% right and has said collectivized farming is the way to go, even two generations later, to back away from that statement is to say not that the former leader was wrong, but that dad was wrong or granddad was wrong, meaning the clan is wrong, right? You know, so what the hell do you do? Uh, how do you change this? I, I, I know, I'm sure, absolutely convinced and you hear this from defectors, that many, many senior people understand that that agricultural system just is, is an eternal downward spiral and that they'll never get food security and they'll always be reliant on the World Food Programme and donations, which, which again, is a, is a massive problem for them, particularly at a time like this. Donations have been falling and falling and falling because of everything else that's going on in the world and the sort of general, not very charitable looking face of North Korea. Um, you know, they know that they need to change this. But how do you do it? I, to, to a smaller extent, this has been a problem in somewhere like Cuba, you know, where it would have meant criticism of Fidel and so on. You know, to make that change is very, very difficult. Whereas in China, of course, you can, you know, leaders can say, well, the last leader was sort of, you know, as I say, 80 percent right. But there was the, we have this little 20 mm percent -hmm. wiggle room. And we're going we're gonna to deal with that. We, we were a little too much on the urban and not enough on the rural, or we were a little too much on the rural, not enough on the urban, things like that. Uh, and that kind of fluctuation, the ability to sort of, you know, as we do, of course, in every country, decide to put a bit more money here and a bit less money there, or, you know, nationalize our health service, but privatize our railways, you know, those kind of decisions um, just are very, very difficult, if not impossible, to make in North Korea by anyone except the leader. And the problem then, of course, is if they don't work, 
because they're half-hearted or they're not really thought through or there's a lack of commitment, then who who's to blame but the leader? And that cannot happen. Right. Okay. So I do want to get on to Kim Jong-un, but I, the one thing, uh, final thing I want to ask about is the, the succession from Kim Il-sung to his son, Kim Jong-il. Was it always planned? Was he always groomed and destined to, to follow on from his father? Or was this something towards the end of his reign? No, I mean, it seems that the decision for the succession was taken fairly early. Um, and Kim Jong-il was groomed for that. He worked through the uh, apparatus but not in the military. I mean, he was never sort of walking around with a gun or doing any of that. He was involved in all sorts of intelligence operations up to and including probably the downing of the South Korean airliner that that was a massive uh, case at the time, massive act of terrorism, and probably giving the order for the bomb in uh, Rangoon that blew up many members, senior members of the South Korean government. So, um, a hard man, but a hard man behind the scenes. So when he came to power, he was, of course, his father's son. But there was a rumor that went around at the time, which comes from a Korean saying, which is, you know, um, tiger father, dog son. Right. You know, which is like, you know, trying to think what our equivalent would be. But basically, you know, you're not as good as your dad kind of thing. Right. You're never as good as your dad. He just created everything and handed it on to you. And, you know, we don't really trust you. So the first thing that Kim Jong-il had to do, and which took up a large amount of his uh, time until his death, was winning over the army. And the way he won over the army was was multiple. In theoretical terms, he created the Songun line, which is the elevation of the military above all else. So you become the most important group in society in terms of your funding and in terms of your prestige. Secondly, he kind of put military people in charge and purged people who he felt were anti-military. So he showed himself to the military as a hard man. And that was what he really needed to do. There, you know, that rumor of him, which was partly true, that he was a bit of a playboy, big drinker, big smoker, enjoyed the girls, enjoyed the fine dining, all of that particularly at a time of famine, didn't go down well with a lot of people. It wasn't known by many ordinary Korean people, but it would have been known by senior figures in the army. The only organization, really, that is capable of staging a coup. And this is a very important point about North Korea, which is if there is a link between China and North Korea, it is not between the political class. It's not between the Korean Workers' Party or their Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party. It is between the Korean Army, People's Army, and the People's Liberation Army. And in part, it was forged in blood by those men who are mostly now dead, but the senior generals who fought in the Korean War. So they have shed blood on Korean soil, all of them. And they have a strong relationship. The political relationship has never been as strong. So if there was a coup, from the military and it was supported by china that's really the only kind of coup that can work to remove the kim clan because the, the politics see the, the politics in beijing sees them as superfluous and that's always been a threat that was held over kim jong-il and it's a threat that's been held over kim jong-un by china for the first time ever joining in with the sanctions regime and so on it's always been one of those things that we've all been thinking about all the time could there be a military coup And if so, will it be sponsored by China? However, to get back to your to your point, 
yes, so Kim Jong-il is in power. He has to win over the army. He largely did that. Um, and the third way that he did that was by restarting the nuclear program uh, in secret, which, of course, gives them a lot of power. Now, there's a lot of arguments, I think, when Kim Jong-un comes along as to whether or not having a nuclear, becoming a nuclear power actually gives the army any extra power because the control of the, the button, if you like, is with the political people, right? The other aspect that certainly has been developed under Kim Jong-il and then massively developed under Kim Jong-un is cyber warfare. And again, conventional armies and militaries, particularly like the North Korean, don't always see cyber warfare as part of their toolkit, right? They see that as something else that's, that's a bunch of nerds in an office somewhere, probably controlled by the politicians rather than a general in a uniform, right? So, so there's a lot of arguments around that. Essentially, though, Kim Jong-il had to prove himself as a hard man. He did it. He purged, which, of course, is traditional. We've seen a lot of purging under Kim Jong-un as well. Um, and, um, you know, he managed to keep the military on side, which meant that then when it came down to who will he hand over to, um, it was possible to move to a non-military, another non-military leader, which was Kim Jong-un, but with the understanding that the nuclear weapons program was in place and that the army was being, as much as North Korea could, funded and ele most importantly, socially elevated. And how did that succession happen down to Kim Jong-un? Because he was relatively young when his father died. And it's quite a uh, undertaking for him to become the, the successor to both his father and grandfather. Did he have guidance? Was he, was he protected to begin with? Huh. So... I mean, you know, again, we could go on about this all day. I'll try and do the sort of quick version of it, yeah. which is, of course, you know, uh, Kim Jong-il put it about a bit, right? And so he had a wife, but he had consorts as well. Um, there are essentially three brothers. The oldest brother and the first one who was tipped to be the successor and was groomed by Kim Jong-il to be the successor was Kim Jong-nam, later mm -hmm. to be assassinated in uh, Kuala Lumpur course, Airport yeah. in February 2017. The Kim Jong-nam screwed up big time. Kim Jong-nam, with his wife and their child, went to Tokyo Disneyland on a fake Dominican Republic uh, passport. And he got busted at Tokyo Airport, which was massively embarrassing. Now, why they busted him at Tokyo Airport is a matter of a lot of speculation that may, may be about the consorts and mothers of all the boys competing and tipping off the Japanese. Either way, that put Kim Jong-nam out of the picture. He went into exile. And so famously, as we now know, he went down to live in Macau, was seen occasionally at the gaming tables. And then who knows what he got involved with. But anyway, he had the uh, face flannel of poison thrown over him at Kuala Lumpur Airport. End of story. Challenger gone. The second brother, Kim Jong-chul, is still alive, but was always seen as fairly weak. The one thing most people know about Kim Jong-chul, if they know anything about him, is that he is a Eric Clapton superfan who follows yes. Eric Clapton uh, <laughs> around the world going to concerts of his and has not so far shown himself to be interested in much else apart from Eric Clapton. He does pop up politically now and again, and he seems to have an understanding with uh, Kim Jong-un. And we can talk about whether or not he's a potential successor. But, but he has always been seen generally as weak and was not really groomed for the job. So once Kim Jong-nam was out of the picture and Kim Jong-un's mother, 
was certainly um, uh, Ko Yong-hui. Ko Yong-hui, his mother, is a very interesting character. She's not an official wife. She's a consort. She was actually born in Japan. She's a, she's a, a Japanese-born Korean. And so she was slightly more interesting that way. Um, she is now referred to as the respected mother of the nation and, and of the dear leader. And the argument is that she sort of maneuvered very well. But, of course, again, it's very easy for us to fall into some sort of Lady Macbeth scenario with all of this. The truth is we don't really know. We're just, we're just trying to work it out. Right? So mm-hmm. Either way, Kim Jong-un appears to be groomed. He seems to want the job. As we know, he uh, was born in the early 80s, educated rather bizarrely at this uh, Swiss private school, brought back, went to um, uh, Kim Il-sung University, which is pretty good to go to the university that's named after your grandfather and that your father went to as well. I mean, I don't know how many people do that. And then worked within the system. Of course, because Kim Jong-il died uh, reasonably young, um, he came to power at at a fairly young age, at a pretty young age, which was part of the reason why it was always thought he wouldn't survive. He was groomed to an extent and did have advisors. There are a number of those. The most famous, of course, was his uncle-in-law, Jang Song-tek. And that, I think, is why his decision to publicly shame and then execute his uncle, Jang Song-tek, when everyone in the Korean hierarchy knew that this was the man who had effectively been a father to him. He didn't see much of his father growing up. He saw much more of Jang Song-tek. This is uh, fascinating. If you want to establish your hard man credentials, you know, to publicly execute the man that, you know, arguably is the closest person to you in the system, is definitely demonstrating that. So that was that was his real Michael Corleone moment. So it was um, he, he he came to power that way. He took over from his father, but then we can talk about this next, I guess. In terms of creating his own legacy, he then decided not to com- comport himself and act like his father, but to go back a generation and to take many of those uh, popular and positive traits from Kim Il-sung to craft his own cult of personality, very much more than his father as a man of the people. Kim Jong-il was very aloof. The North Korean people only heard him speak publicly a couple of times. He didn't really meet ordinary people very much. I mean, he went to military bases and he went to meet government people, but he didn't really meet ordinary people much. He wasn't a man of the people. Kim Il-sung very much was. Kim Il-sung liked to get out in the crowds and ask people how things were going on. Kim Jong-un has done that much more. So he has copied the style of his grandfather much more than his father. And, it, and it's been very successful. Well, you always see the pictures of you always see the pictures of people hanging off him, uh, children, women, yeah. uh, or surrounded by the army. And he's also always seems to be smiling quite a lot, laughing yeah. and joking. And again, that, and that's very much like the grandfather. I mean, I, I think it is. It is, I mean, as far as I can work out, looking at the way these things are crafted there and talking to, to, to people, he, he looks like his grandfather. I mean, there is, a, there is a facial resemblance to his grandfather that there isn't to his actual father. He also is slightly portly and round in a, well, until recently, I guess, it, it, in a sort of jolly way, if you like, rather, mm. rather than a sort of dissipated way which again is his grandfather rather than his father. What Kim Jong-un did when he first came to power was in the way that uh, Kim Il-sung created Juche, 
as his defining theory. And then Kim Il-sung had the tweak of Sungun, or military first, as his defining theory. Kim Jong-un has created the theory of Byungji, which sort of translates as parallel development. And it's kind of an interesting theory, and, and, and you can see the logic of it, which is there, there are two things that have to be done, and they have to be done in parallel. The first one is we have to develop the nuclear weapon, a successful, deliverable nuclear weapon. And then the world won't mess with us, right? And that will give us security. And the second level line of development we have to do is we have to do something about the economy. We have to get people more food. We have to get people more consumer goods. And this is not just because in the countryside, particularly, there is the threat of a second famine. And that would be a disaster for North Korea. But also, as you referred to earlier, people are much more aware of life in South Korea. They're much more aware of what's happened in China. You know, people, they know people who go backwards and forwards to China. They've seen the bright lights across the Yalu River. They've seen the South Korean soaps. They've seen the Chinese soaps. You've got to give these people a few of the goodies, right? You know, some mm -hmm. instant noodles and uh, a laptop, you know, and a mobile phone or something, right? I mean, they need a few of these things. Plus, you've got to keep the lights on and the heat on. So this line of parallel development, which is finish the nuclear program, have the bomb, and then develop the economy, um, has been very much what he's pushed. Now, we know effectively that he has delivered on the first half of that there is a deliverable nuclear weapon the, the problem is that and you could argue it's due to sanctions you could argue now it's due to coronavirus you could argue it's due to um, the chinese uh, locking down on north korea as well he has not been able to really deliver on the second option it's certainly true that there's a few more things in the shops certainly in terms of non-food items there's a few more consumer goodies around and stuff like that particularly for the elite to keep them on board but he hasn't really been able to do it on a mass scale. And that is because he's still stuck in the time warp of his father and grandfather's economic policies of collective farming, of not allowing the retail economy to open up, of not allowing the national cash economy, not allowing people to make money, essentially. And he hasn't made those kind of changes. In fact, he's walked back on some of that, the, the Kaesong development zone, which was with South Korea, which arguably was bringing some money into the country, has closed and hasn't been working for some time. There was some move towards allowing people to open market stores, small shops, you know, uh, and that seems to have been walked back a little bit. And this is, of course, what, what annoys the Chinese so much, because from the Chinese point of view, and I hear this again and again and again in Beijing, is, you know, look, we have a blueprint here, you know. This is how you do it. We didn't just suddenly have Chanel and Louis Vuitton stores. We started with allowing people to open their own store selling cans of Coke and instant noodles and bars of soap, and then they built that up, and people could start opening little restaurants. And it grew and it grew and it grew, and you know, over the last 30, 40 years, and you invite in foreign money but you control it very much and then you can release the controls a little bit and you use it to train your own people up transfer of skill transfer of knowledge transfer of entrepreneurial aptitude and so on and you can do all of this you know china has the blueprint because guess what you can do all of that and have absolute total control by the party i don't think anyone doubts that the communist party of china is in complete control of the country and yet if you want to start mm -hmm. a restaurant if you want to start a shop if you want to change jobs buy a flat, 
buy a Mercedes, whatever. You can do it. Travel abroad and come back. You can do it. right? So there is arguably a blueprint. But again, they're not able to change the system quite that much. And, and just as Kim Jong-il, I think, was keen to do things but was hit with the famine and was hit with other problems, um, so Kim Jong-un has maybe been keen to do things but has been hit by, because of the nuclear program, UN sanctions, and then those UN sanctions being joined by China for the first time. And now, of course, uh, of course, a drop off in international aid, which is partly because North Korea doesn't look very sympathetic, but also because that drop off of aid really accelerated during this sort of Syrian refugee crisis of what seemed to be bigger problems, perhaps more deserving problems, though that's a tricky one for the aid people to work out. Um, of course, yeah. Uh, 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 he suffered a little bit from climactic conditions flood, drought, even though his policies have exacerbated the effects of those. Um, and now, of course, coronavirus. So often there's an intent to do something that is thwarted by by external forces and external decisions that, that North Korea can't really control. Right. So now we get into the, the crux of the conversation. Where the hell is he right now? Because... <laughs> And I know that you can't actually answer that directly. And, and again, it goes back to your Sudoku puzzle. And from what I've observed, there are rumours because of his lack of appearances. Um, and maybe you're going to tell me there's some more information out there. But I also wonder, I wanted to throw this into the mix. Do, do the rumours also lead to maybe uh, Western countries making some vague accusations that he might be in a vegetative state or he might have died because they're trying to provoke an actual response? Uh, yes. I mean, all of all of the above. So um, yeah. I think we're, we're always very careful about all of these rumors that come out. We know, for instance, that uh, South Korean intelligence loves to stir the pot, right? I mean, they, mm -hmm. they love to do it. So lots of stories that have proved to be untrue over the years. Women can't ride bicycles. There's only seven approved haircuts in North Korea. You know, ones like that that grab tabloid headlines around the world and make North Korea look mental are often traced back to sort of, you know, yeah. South Korea. There's a lot of rumor flies around out of China as well for different reasons about mm -hmm. Chinese jockeying for position. However, you know, it is true that he has not been seen at some events recently that we would definitely expect him to be at. It is true that there hasn't been any live footage of him or re recent footage of him, really, on uh, Korean television, which always leads with whatever he's up to, whatever the leader is up to. That's always the lead story. So we don't know that. Um, so why is he absent from 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 public view well i've seen all sorts of views i think the americans yesterday or today cia have hinted that they, they just think that he's hunkered down worried about coronavirus right in hiding yeah but he's just in yeah but, sure, but surely with that he, he he could still release footage of himself yes he could so so that's interesting but you know maybe true but probably not and, and anyway which of his 17 mansions that we know they have that they move around between is he in so there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to show himself. Uh, Health-wise, well, I mean, you know, his father had a lot of health conditions and his grandfather did as well. Calcium deposits on his neck that led to a sort of large goiter on his neck that was always sort of airbrushed out of all the pictures. But his father lived into his eight, his grandfather lived into his 80s. His father was less healthy and, you know, doctors would always look at pictures and say, oh, it's liver disease, oh, it's diabetes, oh, it's whatever. 
We certainly know that he's um, a little bit overweight. Some years ago, he did disappear for a bit and come back wearing looser clothing and a limp, which led everyone to speculate lots of things, gout to to, to uh, operations, cardiac disease. I mean, he is a he is an open smoker. Right? I mean, his father, Kim Jong Il, famously used to smoke Rothmans. And then because that was seen as a bit unpatriotic, Swift can, which is a sort of local brand, and then claimed to have given up. I mean, Kim Jong-un doesn't seem to care. I mean, he is often pictured smoking. There's even the famous picture of him visiting a, a model, well, a model hospital in a ch- children's ward in a hospital and sitting on the bed with a sort of Hello Kitty, a knockoff Hello Kitty doll and, and a fag, right? Um, uh, apparently he smokes these Yves Saint Laurent cigarettes that are flown in from China. But... Uh, so yes, so he probably isn't living the most healthy of lives. However, he is only 38, right? I mean, you know, he's not. So even his father, you know, got into his 60s. So has he had an operation? Well, we also know that the North Korean healthcare system is a problem. And even though we assume that obviously the elite and the dear leader himself will get better healthcare than ordinary people, um, it may not be that great, and something may have gone wrong on the operating table. It may be that uh, there is some problem with him wanting to recover enough before he is shown. You know, in this country, we didn't see any pictures of Boris Johnson in his hospital bed, right? Because it would True. convey the wrong message, right? And I don't think we're going to see any pictures of a, someone looking pretty crap, you know, with their gown on in a hospital bed. Where, you know, it, it would be conveying the wrong impression. If they do bring him out again, it has to be walking down the street looking strong, right? The same mm-hmm. as it had to be Boris Johnson walking out of number 10 to the podium, right? That, that seems understandable. But yes, it is, it is, it is a worrying thing. There's been rumors that Chinese medical experts have gone down to Pyongyang. There is, uh, there's all sorts of speculation about his health. Um, but, you know, there's always been speculation about stuff like this. And again, you know, who knows who's putting that out there and who knows why they're putting it out there. I think um, Tao Yang Ho, the, the defector that was at the British mm-hmm. uh, embassy and defected and has just become a parliamentarian in South Korea, which is a, a fascinating thing in, in and of itself. He's come out with a theory today as well about uh, about what's going on. So, I mean, we just don't know. I mean, the only thing we can say is he's in North Korea. Um, and the only thing I would say, which is the only thing I think we can be sure of, is that if anything has happened to him, if he is dead or in a vegetative state or unable to, to rule, then there will be, as there was with Kim Jong-il and as there was with Kim Il-sung, no annou- official announcement of the death of the leader until the succession is sorted. So the backroom manoeuvring has to all take place as to who will be the successor before it is announced. Now, that was that took at least a week to two weeks after the death of Kim Il-sung, when it was reasonably clear that Kim Jong-il was going to be the next leader. But there still needed to be some consolidation. Similarly, when Kim Jong-il passed, there was some backroom manoeuvring for a week or so before Kim Jong-un began to emerge and was officially announced. And, and some people had to be dealt with. Everybody has to be on side before this happens. And so if he has died or is, is unable to rule, then then that jockeying for position, those decisions of succession are being made at the moment. And that, of course, is uh, a fascinating but completely opaque uh, process. 
Well, who are the candidates? Uh, majority of the press is leading with one of the sisters, but are there other people we should consider in this mix? Yeah, well, the sister is an interesting one. Uh, I think we can discount his wife. Mm -hmm. the, the sister is interesting because she um, is obviously a political operator. She has been very close to Kim Jong-un. She appears to have been solidly on side, even when um, it seems quite clear he assassinated his own and her half-brother and uncle. On the other hand, what counts against her, I think, is reasonably young, although we've had young before with Kim Jong-un. Um, but I think what counts against her is that we have to understand just how patriarchal and old-school Confucian North Korean society is. Uh, we don't see women in many high positions, politics, army, diplomacy. We, we just don't see it. She certainly is the highest profile woman in North Korea by, by a country mile. So that will be the major thing that she's up against, will be the patriarchy and, and whether or not that's understood. Kim Jong-chul, the older brother I spoke to, the Eric Clapton superfan, is, mm -hmm. uh, is still in the mix. And one has to say that, um, although, of course, we, we like to make jokes about him and Eric Clapton, it is also the case that he appears, particularly since the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, to have been much closer to Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Wouldn't he? Yeah, well. Yeah. So he yeah. appears to be much closer to Kim Jong-un and to have taken on various roles in the government, which he wasn't really doing before. So that's a possibility. And then the possibility is you could go outside the immediate Kim clan to the extended clan or the people that are very close to the clan, the conciliaries, if you want to use the kind of Godfather Sopranos sort of analogy for, for the system. And there's Cho Rung-hei, who uh, has been a very close guide to Kim Jong-un, who was very close friends with Jong Sang -tet, Jang Song-tet. And he's an interesting character because he has traveled more than most other senior uh, leaders. He has relationships in Beijing, which will be very important for whoever comes next. He has been to South Korea, which is very important for whoever comes next. And he has also, so we think, been very supportive of more effort towards um, marketization of um, agriculture and industry, uh, which also will really need to happen at some point. Now, if you go back to my 80-20 principle, which means that the leadership can never move outside and adopt that, someone like Cho Rung-hye, who is outside of the immediate family, it's not his father or his grandfather, it, it, but they're people he was close to. So he has that strong reputation, but he's not blood with them, um, can maybe introduce that 80-20 principle. And maybe that can be done within a collective leadership maybe headed by him and several other uh, older, more more established uh, men. It, and Do it we is, even know how um, that power struggle will happen? Well, I, I mean, my theory, in theory, I mean, my, my belief is that that power struggle is probably a constantly ongoing thing and mm -hmm. that people are kind of <clears throat> constantly jockeying for position, either through flunkydom, or trying to talk truth. I mean, this is the great one, right? Who talks truth to power in North Korea, right? Who, who tells Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un when it's not going well? 
Kim Jong Un's very interesting in one thing. In 2014, you may remember, um, a residential building collapsed in in Pyongyang, mm-hmm. and Kim Jong Un was very quickly on the scene of what was a national disaster, and he actually said, "We're sorry." You know, the government is sorry. I'm sorry. The state is sorry. This had never been said before. It was an admission that something hadn't gone right. He didn't do what the old playbook would have said, which was find some official, drag them over, right? You know, have them cry and beg forgiveness and then execute them and then get on with it, right? You know, that's what would have normally happened. You know, or, if, you know, like it's a shoot the whistleblower approach. And, and this always happens in these. I mean, you know, we've just seen this in Wuhan with the doctor that blew the whistle mm-hmm. on coronavirus, right? You know, shoot the messenger, right? And that's what tends to happen. And that may be partly what happened to Jung Song Tech, that it was a shoot the messenger type uh, purge. Anyway, um, you know, I think that that's about all we know. I, I think that's Because if you're part of the power struggle and you lose, you risk being part of the purge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or, or like, you know, Mr. Toe, you have to leg it fast yeah pack your bags and go which he could do because he was in london a lot more difficult to get out if you're in central pyongyang do you have a gut instinct of what's going on well i imagine there's a lot of uh maneuvering and i imagine that that the kim clan will be having their own discussions and trying to work out what to do i mean i would probably lean towards uh, someone said to me the other day um well why don't you know i mean we're not even completely sure about this, but we think that Kim Jong-un has three children and a 10-year-old yeah. son. 10-year-old, yeah. Yeah. So one was, you know, why won't they just try and keep it with a collective leadership that governs in the name of the 10-year-old son? So he would become like Puyi, you know, he would become like the last emperor kind of thing, <laughs> um, sitting on the throne, but with the collective leadership making decisions. And so everything would be keep keep. That seems to me in 2020, you know, even with everything that's gone on in North Korea, that seems to be highly unlikely. So maybe we're looking at collective leadership, but there are so many unknown unknowns in, in, mm. in North Korea. So, for instance, how tight is the Kim clan and how willing would it be to work with people outside it? Um, how much power really do Cho and other senior and quite elderly advisors have? Where is the army in all of this? Where is China in all of this, right? You know, is China going to accept someone in North Korea that it doesn't like, right? Or that it doesn't think it can have some influence over? Has anyone even been thinking about this? I mean, I think with Kim Jong-il, there was a lot of thought given to how the succession would work. And I think with Kim Il-sung, given that he lived a long time and knew he was coming to an end of a natural span, there was some thought given to it as well. In this case, it's not entirely clear that anyone's been thinking about this. Mm. So, you know, I mean, like, I see it, it's all, it is in terms of a monarchy. There's a lot of thought about what happens when the Queen of England dies because she's like 90, whatever, right? I mean, you can't not think about it, right? Um, there's not a lot of thought as to what happens if Charles goes on the throne, dies the next day, and then, you know, William goes on the throne and dies after two years of some horrible disease, right? You know, I mean, there's no thought given. No one's planning that far ahead, right? So I don't know if anyone was planning this far ahead. I don't know if anyone was thinking about this in that way. Though, of course, you know, because we don't know, we can only have all these Machiavellian thoughts that there were lots of people planning, right? (laughs) Both of those theories are as valid as each other. 
and you know that's welcome to the world of Pyongyang watching. So now it's just wait and see, and I guess I guess as time goes on, you speculate a little bit more. Just just a side question: there was a denial that um, coronavirus had reached North Korea. Do, do we know whether it has? Oh, I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, they locked down their borders. There was hardly anyone coming in or out before. Mm. Um, I saw one crazy rumor that, again, I think was probably South Korean intelligence that said someone tested positive for coronavirus and then was just shot. <laughs> they just shot them straight away. Uh, I mean, you know, I shouldn't even be laughing at that. But, you know. Um, so, no, we don't know. I mean, I mean, we'd have to put it in the list of countries that, of course, if it did get a hold down there, the healthcare system would get overwhelmed fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's hard to imagine. I don't know what the government's strategy would be. Of course, it could do all the, I mean, you know, North Korea has been in lockdown for 60 years. <laughs> North Korea has had, you know, social distancing and, and travel control restrictions and everything for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, it could still move around and there's diplomats coming in and out. And of course, there are the way it will get in there. And, and you know, people say it, it's too glib to say it's locked down, because as I mentioned before, there are lots of people going across the border, picking up, you know, whatever they're picking up, <clears throat> everything from Bibles and mobile phones to just fruit and veg to bring back to sell, right? You know, jeans or whatever. Those people are interacting with people in China, and so it, 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 we know that it seems to be able to get everywhere, this virus. So it, it could be a situation. Whether or not they're going to talk about it, who knows? But I have to say that every day that goes by that we don't have news on Kim Jong-un has to be a day closer to a big announcement. Right? Yeah. It was fascinating. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by the country itself. I'm fascinated by what's happening. But ultimately, I guess... Someone like you or I maybe is fascinated and hopeful that if he has died or is in some kind of vegetative state and there is um, some form of succession, that is something that leads towards the co- country opening up in some way, maybe to better relations with the world, better relations with the South, ultimately with some form of reunification, which may be years, decades away. But I guess that's what I'm always looking forward towards and hoping for. Yes. And, you know, all of my writing on North Korea has always been sort of pro-engagement. The problem with pro-engagement is this, is you have to accept you have to accept they're a nuclear power. You have Mm -hmm. to accept that, I think. Um, And they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons. And uh, we don't impose that condition on India or Pakistan or South Africa or Israel, you know, or France or Britain or any of the other. So, so, you know, if they've developed them, that's that. I think you have to take that as a fait accompli. The question is then containing what they have. The only people, you know, and most, the dirty little secret about North Korea is that not hardly anyone cares, right? This is why food aid is, I mean, the the last thing I saw from the World Food Programme was that donations were 50% down on what was needed as a very basic cover. China has been making that up a little bit, but even then have not been happy about various things. So we run a very real risk, a very real risk. And people in the countryside are on very low amounts of food already, calorific intake. And we run a very real risk of there being another famine. 
And there's a there's a nightmare scenario of a total crop failure combined with a medical system that outside of Pyongyang is really non-existent, combined with uh, coronavirus in the mix now, and mass starvation. And of course, primarily that's a disaster for the North Korean people because they're going to die. China sees that as a massive refugee problem on its border. Mm-hmm. China's not the best equipped country, you know, mentally to deal with a large amount of refugees. It's not going to go well. They're just going to lock their border down and, and leave those people in there. And then we could have a whole breakdown of, 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 of the country economically and then socially, which if it occurs at a time of political instability, which we may be in at the moment, uh, could be really disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is, no one really wants to care about it, right? I mean, South Korea has to do something about it, but ordinary, many ordinary, particularly young South Koreans, don't want to think about North Korea. You know, life is fragile enough in South Korea. Everyone has big mortgages. Everybody's, you know, it's a capitalist country. Everyone wants to pay off their higher purchase. They want to pay off their mortgage. They want to keep their job. They work hard. They want to raise their families. They don't want to pay loads of money for North Korea, right? They, they, no, they're not really willing to do that. China doesn't want to deal with it, doesn't want a refugee problem. Japan has its own economic problems. It doesn't want to deal with it. And, the you know, certainly the U- European Union has no North Korea policy and, and doesn't want to deal with it. So that, of course, leaves the one country that has had various approaches towards North Korea, which is America. And if we go back what seems like quite a long time ago now and look at the engagement that was under the Clinton administration, which didn't work ultimately, but there was an attempt to denuclearize North Korea. Um, and I think it's always worth going back and looking at that because it was a virtual acceptance of them having nuclear power. But the problem was that the nuclear power was only being used for military purposes. It wasn't connecting to the national grid. There are still blackouts occurring all the time that mean the operations go wrong because <laughs> the power blocks out. There's even blackouts still reported in Pyongyang occasionally. So in the rest of the country, it'd be a lot worse. What if you take the nuclear reactor that you've developed for military purposes and hook it up to the national grid, you know, so that you can keep the lights on, keep the heat on, keep these things going? That's what that's kind of in a nutshell what Clinton was thinking around. And that's why there was lots of talk at the time about light water reactors that didn't involve that couldn't be used for military purposes and so on. I mean, I think it would be great to, to get back to that. And Albright going there and Jimmy Carter being involved in that process. I have to say, of course, we're going to come to Trump finally, but mm-hmm. I have to say that there really was no, as far as I'm concerned, and I think that some people don't like to sort of uh, say it because it's difficult because we like him in general, particularly compared to the guy we have now. Obama had no sensible Korean policy at all. He did not want to talk about it. He, they crafted what they called strategic patience. Strategic patience was just like, if I don't look at it, it's not happening, right? You know, I, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to get into it with the military in terms of pulling down troop numbers in South Korea. I don't want to get into it in terms of the Seventh Fleet, you know, because Obama was never seen as a pro-military guy, right? So he didn't want to get into any fights with the military, taking money away from them. He didn't want to get into the international stuff. He had a very sensible agenda, healthcare and everything else in America. But strategic patience did mean that, you know, 
Kim Jong-un was building those weapons, right? And no one was really stopping him. And that was frustrating to Beijing, who don't always want to take on a lead role in these things. It was frustrating to South Korea. It was frustrating to Japan. Um, and it was frustrating to North Korea because, you know, they, they want that attention, right? I mean, the, the nuclear weapons are about being a player, about having attention. And Obama gave them nothing. And I, th I think that was, you know, when we look back sensibly on Obama's time, of course, we're going to see it as incredibly positive compared to the next guy. But we're going to have to say Korea was a fail for, from the Obama administrations. Um, of course, Trump's approach has just been, you know, I, I would argue lunacy. Right. I mean, you, you just gave the guy everything. You didn't know what to do. You didn't listen to any briefings. You didn't involve anyone sensible in the process. You had no agenda. You had no roadmap. You had nothing. It's very easy to see a roadmap. For, for Korea, right? They have nuclear weapons. You have money. You basically, in one way or another, work out a way to buy the weapons, right? Through aid, through through whatever. He agrees to mothball his weapons. They haven't gone. He can still tell his people we've got the power to defend ourselves, but he kind of takes it offline and, and does all of that. And you send in some rice and, and, and other stuff and some fertilizer and, and some energy. And you promote a better relationship with South Korea, which many in South Korea are open to, and you have regional forums. I mean, you know, you, you and I could sit here and craft a roadmap that, that may yep. fall down on many levels, but but would do it. And if we got, you know, 50 of the best Korea watchers in the United States, when they have a lot of skill on this, obviously, because since the Korean War, they've had they've been watching Korea. And get everyone in and think about this. We can come up with some good ideas and we can get the Japanese involved. We can get the Russians involved. We can get the train line working. You know, there's a train line that goes from Seoul to the border that then starts again at the Russian and Chinese borders and goes all the way to the Hague, right? And it just breaks. You know, we could get all that stuff going. We can throw the Chinese at them to build docks and railways and roads and everything, right? Infrastructure. The Chinese are our guys for infrastructure. The Americans are our guys for cash and logistics. The Koreans can go in there and get business going brother to brother and all the rest of it. There is a roadmap, but Trump went in with no roadmap. He went in with this like, you know, I'm just a guy. I'm going to do a deal. He's going to be my best friend. Singapore was bizarre and interesting, but achieved nothing. And Hanoi was a disaster. And now he's not interested. So, you know, that never went anywhere. Of course, what it did do was give Kim Jong-un massive win back at home. Right. And that's where we are. And so that's the kind of ball that's going to have to be picked up when either Kim Jong-un reappears or we find out what's happening. Well, it's fascinating. And I really appreciate your time taking me through a lot of this patiently because you've obviously got a very extensive knowledge, not just of North Korea, the whole region and seems like. Uh, the entire history of all politics for every country in the world and every situation. Uh, your depth of knowledge is fascinating, Paul. I've really enjoyed this. Um, people are going to hear this and probably want to hear more or perhaps look at more of your work you're doing. Where, where's best to follow you? Oh, well, I mean, um, I, I wrote a history of North Korea called North Korea Paranoid Peninsula, and that's available, you know, wherever books are sold, which I guess is online at the yep. moment. Um and then I wrote a uh, short ebook uh, after Kim Jong Un came to power that really explained, you know, how that process happened, who mm -hmm. he was, and how he consolidated his leadership and crafted his cult of personality. And I think that that's like, 
you know, one pound, one pound fifty or something uh, online. It was one pound thirty nine. I think I got it yesterday. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for the for the Kindle, uh, and I think that's a, a if you need a bit of prep for what's coming up, that's probably like a good afternoon's read that'll that'll give you a bit of prep and hopefully also. In, in in the book I did, I, the, the opening chapter is really a description of Pyongyang, a day in Pyongyang. And, and mm-hmm. within the ebook, I try to describe many of the buildings and the places in Pyongyang. I've always thought that part of what's very important about engaging with North Korea for us as individuals, as well, not just the political hierarchies, is so few people have ever met a North Korean. Right? You know, not many people have ever bumped into one on a plane or a hotel or in the pub or wherever. Right. And so I think if you've never met people, if you've never sort of shared a joke with them or seen pictures of their family and shown them pictures of yours or or that kind of thing, it's very easy to see the North Koreans as just robots who just march around to the drum of their dear leader. And so therefore those people like Bolton and people like that in the US who might be thinking about military strategies against North Korea, almost get a kind of free pass on that one because we, we don't see them as human beings, right? Mm. We, we don't have that, you know, it's very difficult to, it's difficult to go to war with people you've had a beer with and, you know, had dinner with and stuff like that. So I always try to introduce the city. And of course, not many people visit, even at the height of tourism, you know, what do they get from Europe and America? 6,000 people a year or something, right? So that's difficult, but it's very, very important because the North Korean people are, are wonderfully inventive, creative, funny people i mean you know they they have a great store of uh what they can do although you can never make a political joke and you have to be very careful about illusions that can be seen as being anti the leader there is absolutely nothing wrong with a dirty joke and so they have a great store of dirty jokes <laughs> um, and, and 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 they're great fun and they're, they are of course curious about the world uh, as everyone is um and I think what's what's really, really important about this at this moment and, and the need to keep on engaging, not just in a, in a humanitarian way, um, but also in, in um, a diplomatic way, is that we really sh- must emphasize, it really must be emphasized that although North Korea is not very big and although it is closed off to the rest of the world, we must never mistake the fact that a complete collapse or, or a social meltdown, an economic, complete economic and social meltdown in North Korea will destabilize the whole of the East Asian region. This is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So not first, the first thing it will do is spark an arms race right across East Asia. Japan will probably have to break with its traditions of pacifism in order to arm itself if it doesn't know who's in control of the North Korean military and the North Korean nuclear threat. The United States would have to ramp up the 38,000 troops it has down in South Korea and the 7th Fleet and all the rest of it, right? The South Koreans will have to ramp up. The Chinese will have to move people to the border, and they would have to ramp up their spending on their military. So, you know, spending, arguably wasting vast amounts of money on armaments right at the time when we might have to spend vast amounts of money to rebuild our economies and are all going to be in an enormous amount of debt is going to just make the situation even worse. So I think, you know, don't underestimate the ability of North Korea to destabilize the entire East Asian world, which will include knock-on effects to the United States, 
and particularly to Russia as well, who of course share a border. People forget that they share a border with North Korea. And certainly throughout uh, the Pacific and the Yellow Sea region. And it will have knock-on effects that may change, alter policy. You know, if America ramps up its presence, China gets nervous about that. The Seventh Fleet are in, in greater numbers around the Pacific starts to worry China about Taiwan. Taiwan starts to worry about China, right? You know, the Chinese fleet comes out into the sea and all those old arguments around um, the South China Sea with the Philippines and Malaysia and, and, you know, all of it starts to ramp up. And it can all happen from destabilization in North Korea. So it's, it's still one of the, you know, along with probably what, Pakistan, uh, India, Pakistan, and, and a couple of other places in the world is really the flashpoint, one of the flashpoints that we still have to look to. And it's the one we know least about. Mm-hmm. You know, anything goes on in India and Pakistan, we've got a bunch of numbers we can call, right? And someone will pick up the phone. We do not have the phone numbers for Pyongyang. Mm. We don't know who to call. I'm going to keep a close eye on it um, and I will share those books you've written in the show notes and refer people to it and just thank you again. Look, I really appreciate this. Uh, I always enjoy doing an interview where I learn a lot and I've learned a lot today and there's a few things I'm going to have to go and dig in to afterwards. So I I appreciate you giving me, uh, well, we're over an hour and a half of your time now. So uh, thank you so much. I'm amazed. I'm amazed we managed to do 90 minutes establishing that nobody really knows anything about North Korea. (laughs) well, yeah, but it's because I, I wanted to know a little bit more, about certainly about the grandfather, because there's not a lot of I knew about him before this. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Paul. Appreciate your time and good luck with everything you're doing. And perhaps sometime in the future we'll be talking again when uh, maybe there will be a new dear leader. Yeah, I mean, at, at some as, as I say, at some point he's going to walk out and wave at us all. Or we're going to get like, you know, the black screen from Pyongyang TV and we're going to go into a cycle of finding out who the new person is. Well, we'll just have to wait and see then with that. So, yeah, thanks again, Paul. Take care and uh, hopefully I'll speak to you again soon in the future. Thanks. That was great. Took my mind off the virus for a bit. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Paul French. Now, Paul's knowledge on North Korea's history, the region, and the politics of the area is incredible, and this interview was absolutely fascinating. A lot in there that I'm going to go and dig in further on. And as Paul said, getting reliable information from within North Korea is close to impossible, but we will likely find out what is happening with Kim Jong-un in the next few days or weeks, whether that be an official statement or a public appearance should be fascinating either way. If you're interested in finding out more about Paul's work, please do check out the show notes. He's done a bunch of really interesting things, so please do go and check them out. And if we do have some massive change, if something does happen, I will be sure to try and get Paul back on to discuss the implications. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.